Hello and welcome to the From the Vaults Rugby Podcast. My name is Phil McGowan and this World Rugby Museum podcast will explore some of the greatest players and moments in rugby's long history, featuring first-hand witnesses, commentary and interviews with the people who shaped our sport. In this podcast, we will be talking to former England and Fiji coach Ben Ryan about his life in rugby, from Wimbledon College to Cambridge Blue to leading Fiji to a historic first gold medal at the 2016 Rio Olympics. So we're going to talk about the Olympics, that's the main focus, but uh, we'll go right back and talk about your early sort of experiences of rugby. Do you want to tell yep. us how you first got involved? Yeah, uh, under sevens at Richmond. Back then, the mini rugby was just starting. So the two teams, London Scottish and Richmond, that share the ground combined. So it was a Richmond shirt with a Scottish badge. Captain Mack was my first coach at under sevens. First training session was full on tackling, which I loved. My mum took me to that. Um, and then I stayed all the way through Richmond. Till I went to uni, so um, yeah, it was an amazing like first first time that I played rugby. Um, I loved it. I loved. It. I was only a little ginger kid, but I loved the contact and all of that stuff. Yeah, any rugby players in your background and their family? Yeah, my dad was um, my dad was an international uh, athlete in javelin, but he represented um, Cheshire and Broughton Park and Sale. Um, and the RAF and stuff like that, or rugby as well. He's an open side flanker. But back then, um, he said, much worse eyesight than me. He actually wore his glasses when he was playing. So I'm not sure he would have been very good over the ball these days. But uh, yeah, he loved it. And he set up, actually, he's the former first captain of the Obedience, which is a, a club up in Manchester. So him and his mate formed that club. Um, uh, so yeah, he kind of, uh, yeah, there's a bit of a history in rugby, but only just that generation. Yeah, and you developed in scrum half. Yeah, I kind of played all over when I was a kid, um, and I moved all over the all over the shop. But I ended up as a ended up as a scrum half mainly at Cambridge and Loughborough, and um, and then in the old first division, which was the Premiership. So I played that very first year the game went pro um, in the mid nineties at West Hartlepool, um, and that was a fun time as well. And that was when we didn't really know what was going on. You know, we got paid to play, but we had all this time on our hands and. Um, spent a lot of it in saunas and drinking cups of tea back then I think and you mentioned it already but you got two blues at Cambridge yeah so I played in the last two years when the game was still amateur so at that point the team was like you know it was a really strong team we beat we beat the test side Samoa Um, we beat Queensland when they came over on tour we ran South Africa A close um, uh, and and had that sort of level of games and would play premiership sides and knock them over. And, you know, my captain was a four-time All-Black trialist, who's now the current lawyer for the All-Blacks. Number eight played for the All-Blacks after leaving Cambridge. The hooker played for Australia. Half our back line played international rugby. And I think everyone in that team went on to play minimum, at least, premiership. And then professionalism came in. And, and with that, you know, that kind of vehicle where people went to Oxbridge to, to try and get a job and play high-quality rugby kind of disappeared a little bit and um, and, the, and the academies and professional game took over. And did, you got a run out at Twickenham at that time as well? Yeah, we, we actually, uh, I can't remember if it was the first or the second blue, but it was a world record crowd, crowd for a club match. And it was the first match, telev- first match under floodlights at, um, at Twickenham as well. So 79,000 people. Um, and actually in one of those games, Right at the end, uh, a spectator dressed as a Viking ran on the field and smashed me as I was just about to box kick the ball, um, and his spike got me right in the got me right in the thigh. So I had a bit of a dead leg from his horn. But um, yeah, so I've got some I've got some happy memories of kind of those amateur days. 
Okay, so and you grew up around rugby, so earliest memories of Fijian rugby obviously it must have always been there it's a weird one my earliest memory and I, and I don't I couldn't tell you the time although although I think Kevin Barring who used to work with me at the RFU who was kind of my mentor um, was there maybe playing it was I think London Welsh versus Fiji at Old Deer Park down the road and they were on tour and playing London Welsh who were very strong back then and I remember my dad taking me down there and I just got really vivid memories I can remember the black and white thick striped shirts and the and the socks and that's about it. But that's my first memory of Fiji, I guess. I, I remember watching the Middlesex Sevens on TV and Sarevi stood out and the commentators just loved him. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I was lucky enough to play against Fiji Sevens team twice. Uh, the team that won the, um, the World Sevens, the World Cup, um, and Sarevi was captain. I was playing opposite him at Scrum Half. So, um, and Vuni Baka and people like that were playing in that team. Um, so yeah I was very lucky I got to play against him and obviously subsequently and I wasn't to know 20 years later that I'd end up you know him becoming a, a good friend and an ally um, because he is still you know probably the best player ever to play the game of sevens um, What was it like playing against Fiji's England coach? How challenging? <laughs> yeah to absolutely get everything right and hope that they were perhaps having a bit of an off day one thing that I knew they didn't do very much of when I was England coach analysis so they wouldn't have watched us play and so that meant if we decided to have a different kickoff strategy or a different line out or just a slightly different change of plan of penalty moves you'd often catch them cold catch them off guard um, and I saw in Damu who, who was in the British army and was playing for England he'd always say before every game just keep the ball keep the ball and, and we had to keep the ball for you know 80 85 percent of the time against Fiji to make sure that their broken field, their turnover game, we couldn't we couldn't defend that for long periods. So we had a, actually like over the seven years I was in charge, I had a winning record against Fiji. We should never really have had that, um, and I think that was just because we kind of we caught them cold and off guard on a few occasions. So you'd analysed their weaknesses before you, you came cold. It was more like for yeah. So so when I when I went to coach Fiji, yeah, I I knew that what they weren't doing. Um, I knew what they could do and so as a coach you obviously want to build on those things on their strengths but then there were some very simple foundations and principles that I needed to I needed to change um, You had a job at UK Sport waiting for you and you made a bit of a left field turn tell, yeah. tell us about that decision Yeah it, it's um, a mate told me on Twitter that Fiji are looking for sevens coach I had accepted a job with UK Sport back a house kind of more logistics and strategy with all their sports teams towards you know Olympic Games and four-year cycles but I didn't really feel it was ready to to leave coaching Um, and so I got this friend that said that I applied Fiji I missed the deadline but they knew who it was so they said let's have a let's have a meeting on Skype Uh, I was living in Teddington at the time so two o'clock in Suva was 2 a.m. in England I got a, put a tie on first time since I left school probably, sat, sat down at the breakfast table, had the laptop out, a couple of espressos, waited at two o'clock, bang, nothing, 2.30, nothing. Got to about four o'clock and eventually Skype rings. Now, if you've been to Fiji, you'd probably understand about Fiji time, you know, no hurry, no worry. So they took their time to get to me. And, and when my face went up onto the screen, it also went up onto the back of the CEO's office in 35 Gordon Street in Suva. And um, everybody was peering into the camera, asking me questions like, you know, have I met the Queen? Do I know Johnny Wilkinson? You know, important, like, interview questions. 
And I said, no, I, look, I, I met Johnny and no, I've never met, never, I don't know the Queen. Um, and I stayed awake, which I thought was great. And in the morning, uh, I thought I'd find out a little bit more about Fiji, got on the Fiji Times on the website. And um, the CEO who had interviewed me had been sacked immediately after the interview. So I thought, that's that. And then a few weeks later, I actually ran the corner from, from this museum. We were in Richmond having dinner and my phone rings and it was a Fiji number. And I said, hi, this is Berlin Kafoa. I'm the acting chief executive of Fiji Rugby Union. We've got a press conference in 20 minutes. I said, cool, what's it about? Berlin said, it's to appoint you as a new head coach. So I said, okay, do I have any say in this? He said, yeah, call me back in 20 minutes. So if I'd had a day, I'd have said no. It had been too pragmatic and I'd worried about too many things. But I didn't, and I knew I needed to do something different. I needed to kind of get back to how I was as a coach at the start. Um, and I took that risk. I didn't know that I wasn't going to get paid for six months. I didn't know that uh, how long my contract was. I didn't know that um, none of the boys were contracted, that the, the union had gone bankrupt, that they were being investigated by World Rugby, um, all these various things. Um, but I just said yes, all right. And uh, yeah. I did not change that decision for the world. Probably the best decision I've ever made. Right. It wasn't a sensible choice, was it? You, <laughs> no. You're aware that there was a gamble going yeah. on. Was it something to do with having seen Fiji and understanding that they had potential? Oh, I think if you're ever if you're a sevens coach and you know you're playing at Fiji and you you know you have a good understanding that they're probably as talented or the most talented rugby players on the planet. But you can also see that they and they play with a joy that if you're a coach that wants to play that way with you know, a thin playbook, not a thick one, and it's player-led, and it's all about attacking flair and playing in the moment and keeping the ball alive, then the opportunity ever comes around where you might actually be able to start coaching them. It's just very alluring. And so I can see now going back why you know, I, I, made, I took that risk. I knew I needed to personally, but my heart was kind of singing, even if my stomach was doing somersaults. So as a coach, you want to, you know, it's like a football coach being asked to coach Brazil or, you know, why, why would you turn it down? And um, did you think you could turn them into the best sevens team in the world then? Or? Do you know that like the first week I got over there, the team was picked by nine selectors. I had never met any of the selectors. I didn't know any of the players from the previous year. They'd all gone overseas. Um, they'd have dropped the one player that I knew, Osea Kalinasau, that I ended up making captain. Um, we had a fitness test in week one, and I won the fitness test. First tournament five days later, my old team, England, gave us a pretty good hiding in the quarterfinals of the Gold Coast. And then I got on the plane where the chief executive said that I'm not going to get paid for five months and I have to do it as a volunteer. I still thought, with those brief moments with the team, having a look at the, what was available on the island, that, yeah, we, we would, at that point, I thought, three years' time, we could win an Olympic gold medal, yeah. So the Olympics was on the horizon right then? Day one. Right. Okay, and what was it like arriving at Fiji? Had you been, you'd been there before? No, I'd never been there. Was the first time? I, I, I'd, I'd played against Fiji, coached against Fiji and coached Fijian players, um, but I'd never been there before. So I, I arrived, you know, a long old flight to Fiji, um, three flights we took, I think, and I just thought I'd be able to just get my head down and wake up in the morning and have meetings, but I was met by live television and welcome home Ben signs and hundreds of people at the airport, um, and so it was a whirlwind start, really, where you're just trying to listen, to understand, not to answer, and get as much information to just see what you'd gone into. And that first night after, you know, I'd met half the government cabinet and the Fijian Rugby Union and all the people and live on TV, and I 
got back to the hotel that evening. I sat on the bed and I was like, wow, I'm just so far out of my comfort zone. This is the worst decision I've ever made. But you wake up in the morning and you see the Pacific Ocean and the Pacific Sea, sunshine, sorry, and, um, and meet the people. And then the kind of journey began, I suppose. Mm. Um, you won the Dubai Sevens in your first season? Yep. So that first tournament in Gold Coast, where I didn't really have any control, I had three training sessions with them, didn't pick the team. Um, we got knocked out in the quarters. I then went home, packed my bags, moved house to live in Fiji and had about seven weeks to get the team ready for Dubai. And we just went to basics. Like, um, I didn't play around too much with their attack. We just did some offloading stuff. Defensively, I thought, I just want to keep seven players on the field. So no high tackles, no yellow cards. That was our defensive strategy. And then I applied Pareto's law, 80% of your success on 20% of the things you do. And I didn't have a budget, so I had to do something that didn't impact on costing us anything. So I just ran them hard for six, seven weeks and tried to tried to sort out their, their diet. But it was running them hard up in sand dunes at Singatoka, the World Heritage Site. Um, that my dad used to talk about Herb Elliott, a famous Australian middle distance runner, how he had based a lot of his running on that. Uh, and we did that and, and um, we got them really, really fit in a short period of time. Um, and genetically, the Fijian boys can get fit really fast. Um, and we did that. And then we went to Dubai and we beat New Zealand in the semi-finals. And New Zealand, that was one of the big allure, allures for me. New Zealand, Fiji, I'd watched them play over the years and they were just mammoth games. You know, they just threw everything at it. It looked like physically they all went up a level. And we got to play them in that semi-final and we, we inflicted the heaviest defeat New Zealand have had at any level at international sevens or fifteens. It's 44-0. Um, we actually missed most of our conversions as well. We hadn't sorted out our kicking at that point. But that, and then went on and, and, and beat South Africa pretty well in the final as well and won Dubai for the first time ever. That gave me breathing time as a coach with Fiji because they could see that I had success kept saying to everybody like with the sunshine we're going to have lots of showers because it was built on paper at that point um, but it did allow me to have time as a Fijian coach and, and I quickly found out how passionate the Fijians were and uh, you know if you don't win tournaments the old coach said your house is going to get stoned so um, that didn't happen to me and it just gave me that ability to be able to then put some other things in place that built the program over those first six nine months to give us a chance. And did the players buy into your strategies at once or was it a slow process? Very slow um, because they kind of just nodded their heads and agreed to anything I said. You know, although most of them could speak English, um, not all of them were com comfortable and confident to do that. Uh, so I had a real ally in the captain who had been dropped. We then had an injury in that first tournament that allowed me to pick him. He was the only player I picked in that very first tournament we lost in the Gold Coast. And we instantly aligned we both felt the same about the game we both had kind of points to prove career-wise for both of us and he became like a cultural architect and he was that conduit between the players at the start and from him then everything else started to filter down to the players until we had buy-in you know and I, I obviously my Fijian got better they got more confident speaking to me um, and the whole thing started to click and you got that victory against New Zealand when did you start to perform like that consistently? Good question, really. In the first season, we 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 won a, we won two tournaments. Um, we only really lost a handful of games, but we didn't have any contracts. And so players, if they did well, were then disappearing off 
pretty quickly. Um, so that season, it was probably here in the last tournament. We lost to New Zealand last play in the semi-final, and we'd lost them the week before in the last play in Glasgow. And I could see that we really, we were just we were just a fraction away from turning those around and having long runs. And then the following year, following tournament, I think we went on a on a big long unbeaten run against New Zealand that ran in seven or eight games in a row, and then we won back-to-back world titles the following two years. So I, probably I'd say it took about six months to click. And, mm-hmm. and I guess when that time ended, so did the resource drought. We got a bit of cash. I got, I got paid and we started to see the results. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And then you, you won the title that second year and again the third year. So you're then on top of the pile with the Olympics ahead. Yeah. How do you maintain that consistency going forward? We had an overall strategy. Like we knew August 11th, 2016 was the Olympic final. And so I planned for three years on that basis, knowing that we hadn't qualified. We hadn't, day one, it was a very different story to, to, to the final day. Um, and then, so we had the, these very small, different, not small, but we had these challenges that we wanted to do on the way to the journey. And once we had got qualified for the Olympics, we then wanted to win the series. And then that following year where we'd already qualified, I wanted to bring in some players that, to try them, but we also wanted to retain our title. I didn't want to go into the Olympics, even if we were number one seed, as not the current World, Ch- World Series champions. So they were sub-goals underneath, underneath it all. Um, and then once you are number one, um, you want to stay there. And I know a lot of people say that, you know, that, you know it's harder to, to stay at the top. But actually, like, there's also that fear. Like, you, you don't want to give up that, that number one slot. And, and so we kept our standards high, very simple framework around all the players. You create a psychologically safe environment where everyone feels like they can say their, their bit, where they have belief and purpose, um, straight lines of, of leadership as well. I don't think, I think, you know, although they knew I was their boss, they knew they could talk to me and that they could be open with things. So um, it worked, our program worked. And, um, and, and when we got to Olympics, you know, it was a team that was as well prepared as I've ever, I've ever had at any level. And Fiji have never won an Olympic medal of any type up to that point. So what was the expectation like amongst Fijians before the oh, Olympics? It was all about gold medals. It was in the, all the papers for months, really. Um, and we didn't really shy away from that either. You know, we were number one seeds. We were back-to-back world champions. We'd beaten everybody consistently over 24 months uh, and clear favourites for the, for the Olympics. Um, but it was a first time we had all gone into the Olympic Games, and and having been as a as a, a visitor um, to London, 
um, and hearing stories from my dad from 48 and 52 Olympics when he was a reserve and he was living in the village in, in London and Helsinki. Um, I had an idea about it, but I knew how easily Olympic Games can throw individuals and teams. People get, get it wrong at Olympic Games and I, and I saw that both in our sport and in other sports. Um, so there was obviously, there was, that, there was that unknown, I suppose, that we were trying to cut down as many things that we could control make sure that, that were many as much that we could, that was in our control we, we did so we were the last team going into the village took their phones and mobiles nobody had any outside communication we did everything together um, we'd already hit the diets really hard and taken sugar out for a few months um, and just kept distractions to a minimum um, because the Olympic village although it's you know it's got your federers and your basketball dream teams and Usain Bolts, it's also got a lot of Olympic tourists that are going to lose their first round, their first matches. And then there's a lot of fun to be had in the village if you're not uh, aligned and focused. So I think we got all of that right as well. And that added to you know, what we did on the field. So on, on to that, Brazil, Argentina and USA in the groups. Yep. And not the best performances of the tournament. No, and... and we actually made a conscious decision because it was quite um, it was quite a, it was a bit of a pain really trying to get to all the different training venues and stuff like that the team actually had never gone to the ground before the first game against Brazil so that was all new to them you know now you know when back when I was with England you know you'd have your reckies and your pre-reckies and all that sort of stuff but we kind of underplayed it all we said look a pitch is a pitch is a pitch so we'll just get on with it um, they used to have him very bare minimum in Fiji so we got there and we knew that that Brazilian team, although they're not you know, top 15 team in the world, they just would have been running purely on adrenaline and passion. And over 14 minutes, you can keep that going for quite a long time. They were flying around 100 miles an hour. I think they might even have scored the first try. But at no point did I know that we were going to be in any trouble. And we kind of just slowly got ourselves, probably only just out of first gear really in that first game. But by then, I understood the psyche of the Fijian boys and I knew how they would do enough they weren't going to blow their gasket on game one um, they weren't going to you know get there often I'd been with England teams that just got overly aroused and their fastest sprint times were when they ran out of the tunnel and I, the Fijian boys weren't like that they just took things in their stride and we just built and we knew that that second game against um, Argentina was going to be a tough one. Again, another local South American team that I thought were good enough to win a medal and I thought they were really unlucky not to. And they're a hard team to play, contest for every breakdown. And so to go two from two in the first day um, and not get any injuries, that was job done for us really. And then the following day it was USA. We'd already qualified for the quarterfinals. And then we were in a situation where if we beat USA, we knock them out. But we actually, because of New Zealand's first round loss to Japan, we give New Zealand a ticket to get into the knockouts. If USA had beaten us, we'd have still qualified for the quarterfinals, I think as number one seed, but New Zealand would have been knocked out, our chief rivals. Um, but we took the game as we should do, uh, knocked over USA, and that meant that we then would play later in the day in New Zealand and, uh, and beat them. And it's quite narrow, but again, I never really felt like we were, we were in trouble. We had, we had the, the majority of the ball... They had scarce chances. They took a couple of opportunities, but then really that after day two, we were into the, into the semi-finals and uh, we had one injury that miraculously got cured overnight. Um, and then we lost one other player um, to injury that replaced, got replaced by Masavesi Dakawanga. 
um, who's partially blind in one eye, um, and he came into the squad. So by day three, we were still in really good shape. And whilst all of this going on, there's the GB team that had been thrown together at very short notice. Yeah. And is outperforming expectations. Yeah. When did you start to think about a potential meet with them in the final? I thought we'd play South Africa in the final. Um, they were the team that gave us the most problems. And in fact, we had spent quite a lot of time in training, devising a, a strategy, especially for South Africa's kicking game and set-piece game. Uh, and we're ready to kind of, I suppose, uh, ambush them a little bit with, with a slightly different way of playing against them. Um, and I was really comfortable with that and excited, actually, to try to see if that was going to work. Um, and, yeah, you're right, Great Britain came up the, 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 behind everybody, really. Um, you know, they, the game against Argentina went into extra time and Argentina missed a, a very simple kick at goal to win the game. And then in the semi-finals, they played South Africa and their star player, Sanatla, the game before, had just kicked the ball out to finish the game and win it. And he, he landed badly on his ankle and he got ruled out of that semi-final. And he was, when you look back at that semi-final, you know, you can see how much they missed him. But Great Britain joining that overall big machine of Team GB, I think they didn't want to go back to GB House in the village not having got a medal under their belts. And, and so, you know, when it ended up being Fiji and Great Britain, I was really confident that we were going to do a job in the final against Great Britain. But five of that starting team, I'd, I'd given debuts for England sevens team. I'd known some of, some of them since, I was, since they were 16 or 15, 17. And I was really pleased that they were going to get an Olympic medal. Mark wasn't going to be the colour perhaps they wanted but I think they would have taken that at the beginning of the tournament and did it make it more complicated for you mentally? no it didn't I, I really didn't I really didn't mind about who it was on the other side of the field um, we were really at that that perfect point I guess where you've got a team that are over competent so they, 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 they know exactly what their roles and responsibilities are and they've got alignment they, their core skills are great they're, they're as fit as they've ever been They've got a great leader and they're also a leaderful team. They had all of that stuff going on. But often when you get that, occasionally overconfidence can slip in. But with the team and the humility and the captain and the Fijians around me as well, they didn't have that. So that you know, going into that final, they looked relaxed as I've ever seen them. And did you need to do anything to bring that about or was that just all inbuilt within the... No, first, first time we won the world title here, I had to... I had to had to do a few things in the change room before the game because they were they were off scale, over aroused, and we were playing a quarter final here to beat South Africa. Winner took it all. Whoever won the quarter final, so that was our final. No one cared what happened after that game, and they were crying before the game. And I'd seen a Fijian team when I was with England get over aroused in the Hong Kong final and almost blow it against Wales. So we so at that point I could you know we did something this time around before the final I had got this big speech ready in the, in, to tell everyone you know it's my moment right I've you know, seen any given Sunday and Friday night lights but um, I went in the change rooms they were bouncing around they were happy they were talking to each other having these little conversations their chins were up they were smiling I thought if I say anything it's only for me it's not going to be make them any better so I just said have fun and I walked out and, uh, and that was that really and this is on the eve of the biggest achievement in the country sport in history how did they why were they so calm do you think they were just so I think they, they there was certainly an element of them that felt there was a there was fate involved they felt that this was what they, their destiny they wanted to bring home a gold 
they knew how hard we'd worked. And, you know, I'd never worked a, hard, a team as hard as I did in those 12 weeks, I think, we had before the Olympic Games. We had, you know, back-to-back tournaments at home against each other, against the best players in the world. You know, Josh Tuisova um, was up against Savir Aratha, who was, you know, the top try scorer that year. And Leone Nakarawa, one of the biggest best world player of the year, against Bill Matter, who's now like a uh, top Pro 12 player of the season. And they were just going head to head. So they just felt super confident about their abilities and uh, and they had had the success coming into the tournament to back it up. They'd been to every three-day tournament in the last uh, two years and won. And and so they, they knew that underneath that competency, they had that experience that they, you know, if they play well, they deliver. And the game itself, in the end, wasn't much of a contest. It was no. more of a demolition. So yeah. what was it like watching from the sidelines? It, it kind of was like... Um, the two tunnels have been really interesting for anybody to just see the Great Britain on one side stiff, nervous as you would be for an Olympic final, and then the Fijian boys like the bell's about to go for lunch and they're going to go and run on the field and, and have fun with their mates. And I walk around the back. Um, I'm not a coach that says good luck to the opposite number. I don't really mean it. I don't really want them to have a lucky bounce of the ball or a referee's decision that goes their way. So I might shake their hand. But I'll generally try to avoid them and do it afterwards and, and uh, congratulate them if they've beaten us. Uh, and then as soon as they ran on the field, I could just see that the, the boys looked super relaxed and they were actually almost running in unison. And after 30 seconds, I'll say a clean our captain scored the first try in the left-hand corner, just riding a, a Tom Mitchell tackle. And then we scored four more and five t- tries by half-time, 29-0. Um, and then that allowed us to empty the bench and it gives everybody a really good run and have that last, that second half really, an, op- an opportunity to kind of just, yeah, soak it all in. You don't normally get that in sevens. 90% of the games are won or lost in that last 30 seconds and, and we had won by half time. So you can think about all the people that helped you get there and the journey that you'd been on and really take it all in. And is that what the players were doing after the game finished? After the game finished, yeah, they, they, they all said a simple prayer and then um, we went on the field, shook everyone's hands, and then I whispered in everyone's ears, you're an Olympic gold medalist now. And, and that, that was probably the coolest thing I got to do in my, all my time in Fiji, uh, to see their reaction, their smiling. Um, we'd had a, you know, a long journey together, and, it was, um, and there were lots of highs and lows. We'd had a devastating cyclone. Um, we'd had illness and injury in the team. We'd had um, players' wives dying, and, and all of that uh, stuff kind of, got us all tight as a team. So this was our final point. Everybody knew after that final we were all going to disappear to various parts of the world, either the players with contracts and I had told them that I was leaving. So it was all known that this was our final point. And, uh, and then they did the, the, the Fijian traditional thing that if you get given a gift, you bow down to receive it and say thank you and you do the thomble with two cupped hands and... Um, Princess Anne knew exactly she wasn't told about it beforehand but she'd been to the islands and knew the, knew the, knew the cultural exchange there so she replied in, in the traditional Pacific way and I think that's the only time that anybody's received a medal has, has, has done that and uh, that was, I didn't know that was happening either but the boys would often surprise me with the things they'd do you'd be at airports and seeing them taking the bags off other pe- you know, the, the carousel for other people we had a a flight once where two people were having suspected heart attacks and the boys just stood up and started 
um, delivering the, the chicken or fish to everybody as the, the staff were dealing with what was going on. And, and, and they would do that all the time. Um, Vela Mani, which is the strap line that we use throughout our three years, um, means um, to work together, to love each other. And, and they, really, they really lived that every day. And when you go back to Fiji, the reaction? Uh, well, it's hard, even with uh, even if I have dark glasses and a cap on, there aren't too many gingers on the island, so I, I can't really go there without getting spotted. Um, and, it, and, and, you know, I'm, they were lovely to me, the people. Um, I'm also a chief now in Fiji, the only non-Fijian chief, so uh, Ratu Penny, Rayani Latinara from, the, from Sarua, from the Latinara clan. So um, that was an amazing uh, experience to, to just to be given that and then the whole process of becoming a chief and, uh, and what you have to do for that. Um, and they gave me land and uh, put me on banknotes and bank coins. So um, yeah, I'm really grateful for, for everything that happened with them. And, you know, I, I st- it still feels in many ways like home. And that, that gives a flavour of it. But what did it mean to people in Fiji to win a gold medal in the Olympics? Fijians are very proud of the rugby team. And the rugby team comes from the people, you know, it's a classless society by and large, really. So these boys, you know, a lot of them had jobs, worked in, come from the villages. None of them were superstars. Um, And it's a tiny dot in the middle of the Pacific. uh, And it's not known for too many things. But for that brief moment, they were the best at what they did. And they could quite rightly say that. And so all the people were really proud of being Fijian. It united everybody. It's still a it's quite a multi-ethnic back, um, uh, makeup of the country, um, and everybody was together and having fun and united about things. And uh, there was a real feel good um, that lasted a pretty long time. Actually, they, they you know Fijians like to have a party, and they made it a long one. We had I think three days bank holidays back to back when when we flew back, and uh, it was a pretty crazy but beautiful time. And for you personally, winning a gold medal probably wasn't something you anticipated early on. Oh, I think, I don't know. I mean, you always have ambitions as a, as, as a coach. You know, when I was a kid, you know, eight or nine, you know, and I'm watching Seb Coe play, run against Steve Ovet live on TV and Steve Cram and those guys, you had those dreams as a kid uh, of going to Olympics. And, um, and so I didn't go there that way as an athlete or ended up going there as a coach. Um, from day one in Fiji, I thought we could win an Olympic gold medal. It's very different from the actual reality of slipping it around someone's neck or um, actually achieving that goal. Um, and yeah, kind of, I, I can't say I felt elation after the end. You kind of felt like that was meant to happen and you'd, and, and that, that is what happened. And, and I slept ridiculously soundly that night. And then it kind of leaves a bit of a hole. What next? But um, I kind of put that to one side and enjoyed the celebrations and, uh, and, and spent time with, you know, the team and the management that have all become, you know, really good friends. Uh, last one. Um, so like you, I watched Steve Vett and Steve Cram in the Olympics and just you know, dreamed of yeah. being an athlete. Any sport, I would watch anything at the Olympics. But what, what does the Olympics now mean to Rugby Sevens in particular, do you think? It's a massive game changer, the Olympics, to Rugby Sevens. You know, we, we, we've gone on a roller coaster as a sport. You know, it, it, it got close to kind of disappearing a little bit. Um, when you know we were struggling to attract the quality of players as the game went professional, as clubs kept players and wouldn't release them to sevens, and and then Olympics came along, and World Rugby did a, you know, did brilliantly to get men and women's game involved, and now you know the success of Rio 
seeing a, a, a team that doesn't generally win Olympic medals, win a gold medal, ticked all the IOC boxes, won the IOC team performance of, of, the, of the games and, um, and was a highlight for a lot of people. And it was at the end of that week one, you know, on the Saturday night and, um, and it kind of just put rugby on a pedestal for a while. And so that's meant that the Sevens game now is attracting more sponsors, more people, more people are aware of it, more countries are get, getting better. You're seeing the, the ascent of the USA. We've already got teams like Kenya and Samoa and Canada that are doing well. Uh, and now we're seeing more and more teams at the top table that can win a tournament on any, any given day. Uh, you know, that doesn't happen in 15s. Uh, but in sevens, you can truly say that, that you know that that's going to grow, and that um, uh, for participation and for people understanding the game, that's only a good thing. Thanks for listening to From the Vaults. If you're not already, please follow us on at W Rugby Museum at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Sign up to our blog, also called From the Vaults on WordPress, and more importantly, come down and visit the World Rugby Museum here at Swickenham Stadium. Please subscribe to From the Vaults for regular content like this.